The Traffic Podcast with Mariana Van Zeller is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. A wave of crystal meth is sweeping over the United States. 2.5 million Americans, age 12 or older, reported using the drug in 2020. And overdose rates are on the rise. For my TV series, I wanted to understand who or what is fueling this rise and where the meth is coming from. This is it, guys. We're here. So my crew and I traveled to Sinaloa, Mexico, and ventured deep into the mountains, into cartel territory. They knew essentially since we entered the Sierra Madre that we were here. And without permission, there's no way we would even gotten this close. Wow, this is much bigger than I thought it was going to be. I was allowed to visit a super meth lab, which is a huge operation that is supplying some of America's demand. This is all made by hand, and you just have the feeling that this can go wrong really fast. Galleta, which is what they call cookie, is a mix of other chemicals. Chanuro, salsa, Cyanide, lime, alcohol, and they put the fire on, they, it starts heating starting to boil and the crystal is starting to form at the top. This is the crystal that forms crystal meth. I'm Mariana Van Zeller, the host of the National Geographic TV series, Trafficked. Each week on the TV series, I dive into a different black market and meet the people who make their living inside it. But this, is a little different. From National Geographic and Muck Media, this is the Traffic Podcast. Each week, I'll bring you the story of one person who made it big in the black market, how they lived the high life, and how it all came crashing down. Methamphetamine is one of the most commonly abused stimulants in the world, but it isn't new. Meth was actually officially federally outlawed in the Controlled Substances Act in 1970. But the U.S. saw an explosion of small DIY meth labs in the 90s and early 2000s. The ingredients were super easy to get, and internal government reports warned that anyone with high school chemistry experience could essentially manufacture the drug. But then regulations on key ingredients were tightened and the majority of manufacturing shifted abroad. But returning to this early history of meth production in the U.S. will help me understand how we got to where we are now. So for today's episode, I spoke to a guy who was part of the early rise of meth. I was a dealer, I was a smuggler, and I was good at it. When Breaking Bad started doing their series, I really thought they took some of the clues from some of my boys, you know. Al Perret earned the nickname Nasty Al while he was smuggling hash and heroin across international borders. But he really became infamous in the 1980s when he built what was then rumored to be the largest methamphetamine drug ring in South Dakota. That's after the break. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. 
Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Alperet was born into a Navy family in 1948 in San Diego, California. It was a beautiful city, but he didn't have a particularly happy upbringing. My first recollections are foster homes, because after World War II, a lot of people had to work and they had to find what we call today childcare. Al says his parents got divorced when he was young. His mom left the area, and his dad went overseas with the Navy. So he was left alone. Being in foster homes, you feel displaced. You're belittled all the time. I mean, everybody knows you're a Navy brat. You, you don't really belong with the other family, and they put up with you. And I remember some Christmases where we were in the other room while they opened their presents in the other room, that yeah. kind of thing. We lived in about four different foster homes before um, my dad resettled with another woman. She was very, very, very strict. It seems that she was more than strict, actually. Back then, it was accepted. And uh, so you just got beat with a belt when even minor infractions with this woman. The first time I saw Cinderella and uh, saw the evil stepmother, I went, wow, now that personifies. Her and dad would eat in the living room. They'd have steak and we had to have hot dogs and she'd ring a bell and we'd get up running. Give me a beer. Get your dad a beer. Uh, I need more butter over here. Coming out of the foster homes, I didn't need that. I needed more what they call today grace. And Al says he felt like that might be coming his way when his dad and stepmom got more religious. They quit drinking and went to church. And they went to a Southern Baptist church. At church, his stepmom played the part of a nice, sweet woman. And he says she played it extremely well. We just look at her like, what are you doing that for? That isn't how you really act at home. But her church persona was better than the alternative. So Al stuck around. I got involved in the choir, and I was the leader of Youth for Christ. And yet inside, I really felt like God didn't really care, to tell you the truth. Um, mm -hmm. And then my dad's best friend decided that he would counsel me after I got caught going to a dance. You weren't allowed to dance back then in mm -hmm. the Southern yeah. Baptist tradition. We find ourselves in the choir room with, with a picture of Jesus on the wall. He gave me a cold Pepsi to keep me busy while he fondled and uh, enjoyed himself. He was a deacon within the tradition, so a very trusted member. Al says the sexual abuse continued for years. That went on for, oh gosh, it seems like forever, but you know, I graduated um, and remember that a year before that it stopped. I graduated from high school um, during the Vietnam era and I decided I didn't want to get shot up yet. So I went to a seminary. I went to California Baptist College up the coast in Riverside. And what a time I had. I started surfing down in Huntington and Newport, and, um, and then I played ball. And um, that some of the members of the basketball team 
um, got me involved with uh, drinking. I remember the first time I drank was like a spiritual thing to me, man. It was like I no longer had all that, the demons from the past. The first time I drank, I got a blackout. How old were you? That would be right around 18 years old. Because mm-hmm. I was in seminary till I was close to 20. And uh, I got kicked out for the drinking because I couldn't hide it. After he was kicked out of seminary, he signed up to go to Vietnam. But an officer found out that Al could type. So instead of going to fight in Vietnam, he was sent to Germany to be a legal clerk. During the day, I reported to colonels and generals and wrote up court-martials for them. And, and then at night, oh my gosh, I was a terrible, terrible partier. What was your first experience with drugs? It was in the Army. I um, came home after drinking at the NCO club, kind of pretty tipsied out. And these guys were always at the other end of the barracks, just having a good old time. I finally went down there out of curiosity, and they go, you're a California boy, and you tell me you don't smoke this? And I went, what is it? Come on in here, Sarge. And I sat down, and I smoked my first bowl of hash. I got so zoned. It was like the first time I got drunk, laid on my bunk. And the next morning, I woke up early, and I woke that kid up. And I said, what was in that pipe? In that pipe was product from a fellow officer who had a really good side business going, buying and dealing hash from Africa and Asia. Al says that officer saw his potential and his love for hash. So when that officer's deployment was up, he handed the reins of his business over to Al. All drug dealing is is bartering. I would pit dealers against each other, and I would always come away with the best deal. We were about 50 miles from Frankfurt. Well, I ended up renting cars. You can go over 100 there easy. And yeah, there's no speed limit in Germany. None at all. <laughs> it's a fun, speed-infused place, you know. <laughs> I'd hop in this Audi, me and another dude, we'd eat a few speed pills and zoom, go all the way to Munich or all the way to Hamburg. Did you ever get caught? They could really never pin me down. This major pulled me in his office, took off his brass, and said, we're gonna go for it, you little sergeant punk. They couldn't bust me, because I would find out from people uh, with the CID, Criminal Investigation Division, because they liked me. And we'd all got high together, so they would always (laughs) warn me. I did my three years from uh, May, March 18th, 1968 to March 18th, 1971. I completed my three-year honorably discharged, by the way. Surprising now that I've heard all your stories. <laughs> oh, it's a shock, you know. <laughs> it's nothing but, to me, a God thing, man. When I got out, I smuggled back uh, 40 pounds of hash in my duffel bag. Back then, really? they just let Army guys go through. Al made his way to Southern California, and with that 40 pounds of imported hash, he quickly made friends with members of a one-percenter motorcycle club. I had always ridden bikes, you know what I mean? And there was a group nearby. I'm not allowed to say what groups, mostly. This one I can. Um, They've given me permission. They were called the Hessians. 
It's really rare to have anybody openly talk about any kind of illegal activity within the biker world. There's this club loyalty and code of silence that made it really hard for me to report on in the episode we did about outlaw bikers for our TV series. Al says he didn't join the Hessians, but he was on good terms with the members and was allowed to hang around. I had 40 pounds of ass, so that was kind right. of a, a introduction. What did you like about the motorcycle clubs? What attracted you to them? Um, the freedom to be whoever you want to be and to party the way you like to party. And it's family. Look what I grew up with. I needed to find some people I thought I could trust. And they really roll out the red carpet for you. Were you given a name? Yeah, I, was a, I had a very foul mouth. I make everything a joke, but it was nasty. And so the guy yelled out in a clubhouse, you know, you got a nasty mouth, Al. And somebody yelled, nasty Al, and it just stuck. <laughs> and uh, so, What did you think of that? Did you like that nickname? Oh, I was so proud of that. I mm -hmm. thought, they accept me. I was a nomad. A nomad is you belong to no one. But I was a dealer. I was a smuggler. And I was good at it. For this episode... I thought I was getting into a story about a meth kingpin, but Al actually got there by way of trafficking lots and lots of other kinds of drugs. And that's an important part of this story. Were you running drugs for, this, for these motorcycle clubs? Well, here's what happened. The president found out I was a San Diego boy, and because certainly you knew somebody in high school. Al did indeed have some contacts from high school who had become involved in drug dealing in Tijuana just across the border from San Diego. And so uh, I drove down there with the president of the club and the vice president, and we went around partied, and I met up with them, and I'm asking, can you guys help me out? And that's how it started. So it was a weed business then? Yeah, it was just a little bit of weed, man. But that little bit of weed turned into an independent business, trafficking more weed, and then some harder drugs. Then I got into cocaine, and I got behind on some cocaine payments to my connections down in Mexico, and they Oof. offered me to smuggle a pound of heroin, and it would make up all my debt. Who are you smuggling for? I had met some people on the streets that were connected, is all I can say. He says he did the drug run, but then got in trouble when he accidentally sold this pound of heroin to the worst possible person a paid DEA informant. I thought it all worked out, you know, how drug dealing is, and then nothing was worked out. So I got busted and I got sent through the California system. I went to San Diego County Jail for uh, 18 months, fought my charges until finally I got it down to a five to life. He was released on good behavior in 1976, and that's when he decided to try the drug that he was arrested for smuggling in the first place. I'd never tried heroin before, and boy, did I love that drug. And so here I am on parole, not supposed to leave the county of San Diego, and yet I'm getting strung out quickly. My habits started growing, and I supported my wife's habit, too. Al needed a way to support this addiction. And because he never gave up the names of the people he had been running drugs for prior to the bust, he was trusted with more job opportunities, smuggling heroin across the border. I went down for a month every Friday and got an ounce, and I swallowed it um, with balloons 
37 oh. balloons at a time filled to the maximum. That is so dangerous. If something were to happen, to if they were to open up inside you, I mean, you would have died. Oh, there right? were times when they didn't all come out, sis. Now, it wasn't always 37, sometimes 35, 33, <laughs> and then I had to wait till it came out the other shoe. Wait, 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 what, what, okay, wait, 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 can we talk, how did it first come out? As soon as I get across the border, I would have guys guarding either a Chevron shell, we changed it all the time, and I'd go in the men's bathroom and they'd have salt water, sea salt water waiting for me that makes you puke if you drink it. Ah. It's like, and they'd just come tumbling out, man. If you got waylaid too long at the border or, you know, you couldn't get across fast enough, a few of them would be lodged in your um, intestines. We triple bagged them uh, with American balloons, the thickest balloons you can get. And it's about a golf size bag. I can get it down. Um, using guava juice, the thickest fruit juice you can get in Mexico. And then um, sometimes they wouldn't come up, and so they'd have to come out the other end. People would go, I can't believe you're doing that. Just one's going to kill you. Absolutely. It's insane. You don't care at the time. You're an addict, man. And it's a death thing anyway, being a heroin addict. Al was on parole and technically needed to be clean and sober. However, he says he had a trick for that. I'd go in and pee for my parole officer. I would use somebody else's urine. My wife made me a belt that had a slipknot condom where somebody else's urine, and that worked for about a year. How I got busted was they mixed up my urine with the women's section, and I came up pregnant. My wife was running late and couldn't get anybody but a woman. And so that woman evidently was pregnant. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God, that's so crazy. Yeah, that world is full of funny things and sad things. It was around this time that Teresa, his wife, got hooked on another drug, meth. And she started her own meth-dealing operation. I didn't like meth. I I don't like the people. Uh, I don't like the drug my wife got strung out on it. She knew some people, (laughs) I'll just say that, and so she got always good mess. Al started to buy and sell that good meth himself, in part to feed Teresa's habits, and in part because the demand and supply was strong. There was money to be made, lots of it. I'm telling you, man, my wife is quite a crime partner and quite a a legend on her own. She was doing her thing, but I didn't like her people. They're always peeking out my window. They're always acting like they're gonna tear apart my TV or something, you know? They're terrible people. And then when they're not using, they're some of the nicest people, man. My my wife, she's a very beautiful woman, but boy, when, <laughs> when things get tough, she gets tough, you know? I saw her knock her sister out one day and I said, I'm gonna marry that woman. But when she came at me, as I said something stupid, I said, we need to stop methamphetamine. She came at me with two butcher knives. We went rolling down the stairs. Our son was around. He almost could have got hit. My wife had opened up my left eyebrow and almost cut off my left thumb. It was flapping in the wind, man. I grabbed my son and I moved to South Dakota. Al says he needed time away from her. 
He needed to distance himself and his son from her habits and the way it made her act. He met some members of the local motorcycle club in Rapid City, South Dakota, and they offered him a job, bartending and DJing at a topless bar. He took it, and the connections that came with it. Connections to the drug scene. He found there was a demand for meth, but the meth available in the area was really low quality. I wasn't using meth, but I found out how much money I could put in my pocket. And that's always been a big thing for me is the money part. Right, and that can be addictive as well. It is It is an addiction. For me it is, <laughs> you know. Uh, <laughs> I grow up poor and you start getting money, it's like you almost think you're rich. Right. <laughs> <laughs> when in fact it's a false front, man. It wasn't long before Al reconnected with his wife. I said, if you come up here, bring some of that terrible product you have. I didn't think she would, but she came up with an ounce and a half of pretty pure meth that they had not seen that kind of quality in Rapid City in years, you know. So I was off to the races. After that, I started dealing again. That's how methamphetamine came into my world. More after the break. Al started building his new business. He knew he could get pure meth from his connections in Southern California, connections through his wife, who was still herself addicted to the drug. You know, meth is an incredibly destructive drug. So did you ever feel guilty about what you were doing, knowing that a lot of people had access to meth because of you and, and your business? It doesn't come until you're out of the lifestyle. At this point, Al says, he was focused on just how much that California meth was worth in South Dakota. Where was the meth coming from? Where were you getting it from? Uh, mostly from motorcycle clubs that had their own producing. You know what I'm talking about. They're their own criminal enterprise. It wasn't Mexico yet. So it was uh, domestic labs. Yes, it was all in-country. In the 1980s, San Diego was known as the meth capital of the U.S., and biker gangs were at the forefront of its distribution. I went all forms of transportation. I would pay people to fly down there, stay in a motel for a couple days on the beach so they had a good time. So all they had to do was put it in their suitcases or drive it back. Al says they'd make their buys in Southern California and travel back to South Dakota by car, bus, plane, or train. Then I started flying back down to San Diego, going to the kitchens. Uh, you know what that means. Kitchens, as in meth labs. And as his business took off, he started meeting directly with producers. Cooks are different. <laughs> but I always like different. I remember going down to San Diego and going inside, and I, it just stank like, because once you start cooking, that chemical just clings. But I went in, it was so professional looking. I mean, when Breaking Bad started doing their series, I really thought they took some of the clues from some of my boys.
I've been to all sorts of meth labs, from super labs in Mexico to mid-sized operations hidden in the middle of suburban neighborhoods, and even little shake-and-bake labs that pop up literally anywhere. There are hundreds of clandestine meth labs scattered across California. Most of mine were in apartments and or trailers. Sometimes you go out to the desert, sometimes in Alpine, up in the mountain regions of San Diego. I've always been a, a people person. And you gotta be if you're gonna organize the kind of thing that I had organized. Al was building a meth empire. He says he eventually had 150 people working for him, but he was adamant on handling the big deals himself. Why was it important for you to be so involved in actually running drugs yourself if you could just hire people to do it for you? Trust and greed. Somebody can get busted and you don't even know it and they can turn on you so quickly. I, I just didn't trust people, man. It started when I was a kid in foster homes and that. You take care of it yourself, and then you know it's done your way. I would always put those people in charge of South Dakota, North Dakota. That's fine, but anything outside the realm of that, they didn't need to know about all that. That's my money. Al took his business to an event that's been dubbed the Motorcycle Mecca of the West. I went out to the Sturgis Motorcycle Rally, and they they have what's called campgrounds, and that's where... I, uh, I actually went to one for, for our TV episode. I went oh. to the Sons of Silence campground. I was just going to say, <laughs> yeah, they got... You, then you know what I'm talking about. It's a huge 10-day event held in the Black Hills region of South Dakota. On average, over half a million people show up at this rally every year. It's like nothing I've ever experienced before. Something out of Mad Max, almost. It's loud, there are engines revving, there's dust, there's music, there's an insane energy. Al was never an official member of any of the motorcycle clubs in South Dakota, but he earned a reputation as a trustworthy character. I was the kind of guy that could ride in on my Harley in any of the camps, and I always had a connection they were running steady supply the whole week of Sturgis. We would make a lot of money. He says he'd have his people fly pounds and pounds of meth from San Diego into airports near Sturgis. He'd pick up their packages and drive them straight to the motorcycle rally. I had uh, five states, over a thousand pounds of meth easy. And now I'm not just delivering meth, but I'm picking up deliveries of guns, money. I could go from one gang to another. I've been shot, stabbed, and run over, so I got a reputation of I'm solid, I can stand up. If you talk to my DCI agent, which is Department of Criminal Investigation, he would even say, I couldn't quite always keep up with who you were sending out, but I always knew if I followed you, that something would happen. He goes, you were quite a flamboyant drug dealer. He gave me much praise for being a gangster, I guess. <laughs> and so how much money are we talking about? I would say anywhere between 150, 250,000 a year. It's a lot of money for that time. Yeah, I had really a lot of toys. You can't have enough bikes. I do love Harley, don't get me wrong. I own a Harley trike right now, um, but you know, I'm not prejudiced. <laughs> Anything that goes fast. Nasty Al was riding high. He was becoming notorious in drug circles. 
but notoriety has its drawbacks. Enel had this itching feeling that it wouldn't last forever. You know it's going to happen, and you just try to prolong it and have as good a time as you can. You feel eyes on you, is what we'd say. You know they're on you. You know you're being followed. Your antenna is very alert. I heard the rumblings, people going, there's a Rico coming down and your name's at the top. And then they'd walk away from me. There was a shop in town called the Black Hills T-Shirt Company. Al says it's a place where bikers hung out and did business. And there was a lot of new activity at the shop. More people buying meth than usual. I had this feeling that something, you know, that portending doom type thing, that too many people were coming up to me and too much stuff was going on. Too much stuff was indeed going on. The T-shirt shop had been taken over by undercover federal agents who were recording every little transaction. A dope dealer's home is set up for this emergency thing. When it happens, get out of my way. I had um, a basement that was empty. I had all the windows blocked with aluminum foil so nobody could see in, you know. But I had that feeling that day that I just shouldn't be doing it there. I was in my basement measuring out. The phone rang. As soon as I answered it, all I heard from one of my partners, old ladies, was, they're here. They're running through our house. They're on their way to your house. Get out of there. My son, he's playing with his little games in his room. As soon as he heard my wife go, stay in your room, he knew what was going down. I had everything in my hands from scales to bags, and I was willing to go ahead and pour it all down and have it go down the sink. There was always a a sink in our basement, see? I had practiced this I don't know how many times, and you know what? It never goes the same way when it's really happening. I thought, I'm just getting out of here. And I flew out to the Cadillac, threw everything in the trunk, zipped out, zipped around the corner, and bam, that's when they went around the other corner, coming at me. You had Rapid City cops, and then you had DCI, then you had DEA, you had ATF, and and so all of them swooped. And just scared the hell out of my wife, but she knew what was coming, you know, because I was out of the house and so quick. And so I hid out and didn't even get a hold of her because I knew they were tapping my phone. I had her meet me around the block like she was going to the store. And so we disappeared for a few days till I could sell all my product because I knew I'd need it for a lawyer. Al had to lay low. The bust of his meth ring was making headlines in South Dakota, and he knew he was a wanted man. I made it the front page, the Rapid City Journal, biggest methamphetamine bus in the Black Hills, and that my picture was at the center, of course. I changed cars, I changed uh, disguises, I cut up my beard off. I had a last night with my wife, and I paid off all my debts, and I walked inside the police station. I don't know if you know this, but every police station has a lockdown. As soon as they saw me walk in, click, click, click. <laughs> Submachine guns and everything out, man, like I'm, like I'm going to walk in blasting. But I surrendered. Why did you decide to surrender? 
Um, I'm of the mindset that if you know, you know, you know, then let's get time started. So he pleaded guilty to his trafficking charges, and then he heard his sentence. Ten years in state prison. I thought, cool, I can do that. That's no, Well, I didn't realize the feds can also charge you. And all they use is different parameters and different informants, different snitches. So I was double whacked. The federal case against Al was strong, in part because of the other defendants in the case. 44 people had been arrested as a result of this 21-month-long T-shirt sting, as law enforcement called it. They finally got me through. People that were close to me didn't want to do their time. And so they gave up the ghost. And, I, you know, I, I forgave him, man. I'm willing to go to prison. I am the leader. Let's get it on. At the end of the day, Al was sentenced to five years in federal prison for conspiracy to distribute methamphetamine concurrent with a state sentence. So Al prepared for his time. And the relationships he made with motorcycle clubs over the years paid off in prison. I go in proud. I wear my sunglasses, my bandana. I got bros waiting for me, the words out. It's, it's just like what you see in the movies, you know. They got you your pack of cigarettes. They got you a good sell. They've already worked it all out. As long as you kept your mouth shut, you're accepted, you know, by all. In there, there isn't, you're a Vago, and you're a Mongo, and you're an angel, and you're, you're a son. Once you're behind the walls, it's you against the man. Al found his crew, but he says he also found purpose in self-improvement. He got a business degree and started a treatment group. And he says that eventually, all that work got him paroled early, after just two and a half years. I even told a couple wardens, I'm not ready to leave. We just started a new AA group here. Can't I stay here? I was scared to get out, to tell you the truth. While Al was in prison, his family wasn't doing well. They'd been homeless and hungry. And the only group that had supported them was a church down the street. So once Al was released, Teresa asked him to go to church with her. But he was hesitant. It was a Southern Baptist church, the same denomination that he'd been abused in. But eventually, he did go. And he says the congregation gave him so much love that he kept going back. He started leading Bible study and eventually even became an associate pastor. And then he started working at a treatment center. I can't give back enough because of what I did. I mean, really, I asked for the worst of the worst and overall, almost 100% they're meth people. It just brings back to me the enormity of the destruction that this has had uh, on America. It's a, a terrible, terrible evil drug. I mean, look at what you asked me, man. Do you feel remorse over the methamphetamine dealing? You know, you go through years of remorse in the program. I admitting God to ourselves, to another human being, the exact nature of our wrongs. I can say I was rebellious because I was molested and I was beat and I was abandoned. I like to be removed from this thing called society and drugs and alcohol did that for me. Mm -hmm. And yet it took me to extremes. 
I mean, I'm not going to lie to you. Some of my times were fun times. But the end results, we talk about choices and consequences. The end results are terrible. It's like you pay a dear price for this lifestyle here. But Teresa was focused on Al's change. My wife said, I looked it up. We're going for the presidential party. And I went, oh, man, this woman is crazy. I never even heard of a presidential pardon. Teresa sent in an application one administration after the next for 14 and a half years. Until one day, in 2011, the phone rang. So I answer it, and uh, the voice clears. Is this uh, Pastor Al? And I said, yeah, you're speaking to him. Are you sitting down? I said, no, I'm standing up. You might want to sit down, sir. (laughs) Then I knew I was going to find out. I mouthed to my wife, pardon, it's the pardon. She goes, pardon? Pardon me? And I went, and they're laughing. I go, it's the pardon. Al says that on the other end of the line was the pardon attorney of President Barack Obama. Al was one of 13 people to receive a pardon that year. How did you feel at that moment when you got that phone call? Relief because there was a weight on my shoulders. The spiritual darkness part of that is you're no good because Mm -hmm. of what you've done. My wife and I, I say my wife and I because she's such an important part of everything here that I do and get, you know. Our thing is we wanted to be able to be recognized that there is hope, that you can change They'll still call me an ex-con, sis. There's Southern Baptist ministers the first time I preached in the pulpit. Two or three Southern Baptist ministers got calls from people in the congregation and said, how dare him put that ex-con up in the pulpit? I'll always be doubted at, at certain parts and with certain people, and that's okay, man. I'm not ashamed of being an ex-con because it's my story. Using our story to help other people is what get us where we are today. I became uh, the first ex-con ever to be allowed to be a chaplain in this penitentiary system. It was weird walking in. I had a badge on like other chaplains have on, you know. I walked in and it was overwhelming, man. The lifers that helped work with me back in 1988, 1989, 1990 of helping me learn how to live a different life when I got out were standing at the gate when I walked in as a chaplain with an applause. What does that happen in America where Nasty Al becomes Pastor Al? Al wrote a book about his life called From the Pit to the Pulpit and started the first biker church in South Dakota. Al's wife, Teresa, spent 19 years as a chemical dependency counselor. They've been married for 45 years. Tell me about the core tenets of your ministry. How are they different than the church that you experienced? Oh, you would love it, sis. You would love it. I always say, uh, this isn't your mama's church, but invite your mama anyway. <laughs> I really think that we need to minister to people that other people don't want. And that's what I felt like all my years is that I didn't belong in this society. We minister to the depressed, 
oppressed, addicted, and convicted, and not necessarily in that order. (laughs) And I'm going to say something that I never say, but amen to that, Pastor. The Traffic Podcast with Mariana Van Zeller is a companion to our TV series, Trafficked, from National Geographic and Muck Media. This episode was produced by Abby Spears and our lead producer, Margaret Katcher. Our associate producer for this episode is Francesca Fenzi. Sound design, editing, and mixing by Eric Carbonara. Production help from Todd Benson. Recording assistance by South Dakota Public Broadcasting. Original music by Jeff Morrow. Paula Benson is line producer. Executive producers for Nat Geo are Chris Alberts, Bengt Anderson, and Sean Johnson. And from Muck Media, executive producers Jeff Plunkett, Darren Foster, and me, Mariana Van Zeller. Subscribe and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Tell your friends to rate and review the show if you've enjoyed what you heard. And tune in to the Traffic TV show Wednesdays on the National Geographic channel or stream it on Hulu. Special thanks to Steve Munson, Chris Lowry, Teresa Peratt, and Al Peratt. <laughs>